Rob Oldfield is 31 years old. He's an aspiring actor. He's done lots of plays. He's had some bit parts in TV shows and a couple of non-speaking roles in commercials, but it's a tough business. Today, he's lying in a hospital bed. He's in a wing of Northwick Park Hospital in London, England, but this isn't an acting job. He's found another way to make money. He's been up since before dawn. He had to be at the hospital at 6 a.m., so he closes his eyes and tries to grab a nap. After about 20 minutes, a nurse comes into the room. She puts a needle into each person's arm. See, Rob is just one of four young men in the room. Each needle is connected to a machine that dispenses a new medicine. A miracle cure, hopefully, but it's a cure for a disease that Rob doesn't have. We do a lot of history stories on this show, but this is recent history, 2006, March 13th, 2006. It's a Monday. This is a phase one clinical trial. Trials have three of these phases, each with their own specific question. Phase one asks, is it safe? By the time you get to phase one trials in humans, the medicine has already been tested on cell cultures in a Petri dish and on animals, mice, or maybe pigs. This particular drug, TGN1412, had also been tested on monkeys, and everything looked great. The medicine was created by a German company as a revolutionary treatment for leukemia. It's different from other cancer drugs because it doesn't attack the cancerous cells itself. Instead, it teaches the immune system to attack them. But these men, the four in Rob's room and four others in the room across the hall, didn't have leukemia. They were just there to make sure the drug is safe. This was a first-in-humans trial. So, they were given a dose 500 times smaller than what had already been shown to be safe in the monkeys. A friend of mine had done trials, and he said I should sign up. They were offering £2,000, and I thought that was okay. That's Rob Oldfield. That clip is taken from a documentary the BBC did about him. I was interested in the just the scientific contribution I could be making. If you're Rob, it's a pretty good pair of incentives. 2,000 British pounds, that's almost 3,500 bucks US, and you get to tell your friends at the pub that you're helping to cure cancer. And all it takes is three days of hanging around in a hospital. It was a medicine being tested in a laboratory situation, approved by the government. What could go wrong? <laughs> it was a double-blind, randomized trial, meaning some of the men were getting TGN-1412, and some were getting a placebo, a dummy drug that has no effect. It was double-blind because neither the subjects nor the doctors knew who was getting the real stuff. But it didn't take long to figure that out. The trial starts at 8 a.m. The four guys in the other room get theirs first. It takes about 10 minutes for each person, so around quarter to nine, they move into Rob's room. But already one guy, test subject number two, starts getting a headache. Of course, they don't want to give him anything for it because that would mess up the trial, so the nurse gives him a cold compress for his forehead and tells him to try to relax. 
He's also feeling flushed, so he takes off his shirt. Meanwhile, the doctor administering the trial is now in the second room giving Rob and the other three men their doses. Rob is test subject number seven, or as the sign over his bed says, 007, which is pretty cool if you're a James Bond fan. It also means he's second last to get his dose. While Rob is getting his injection, a nurse comes in and tells the doctor about the guy with the headache. The doctor checks his watch and quickly writes something on the pad he's holding, and then he moves on to the last subject, number eight. Okay, now it's 9.30. All the men have had their injections, and the doctor returns to the first room. Patient two is now suffering from back pain. He still has a headache, and now he also has a fever. Now, another guy in that first room is repeating the same three symptoms, headache, backache, fever. In the second room, where the three men had gotten their medicine a little later, other symptoms are starting to show. Rob starts shivering. He isn't cold, he's just shaking involuntarily. And then he throws up. Now, if you've ever been in a room where someone throws up and you already aren't feeling well, I think you can guess what happened next. In his report afterwards, the supervising doctor wrote, They started to fall like dominoes. In both rooms, three of the four men are vomiting into big yellow plastic biohazard bags. The contents are tagged and saved. I mean, this is a medical trial after all, so every piece of evidence has to be preserved. Then patient three starts yelling. I want to leave now. I don't care about the money anymore. I just want to go home. Two of the men lose control of their bowels. Then two more. Even as the clock approaches noon, nothing has stabilized. The symptoms aren't plateauing. Everything just keeps getting worse. The nurses close the curtains around each bed so the subjects can't see what the others are going through. And in the midst of all this, two subjects, one in each room, are fine. I mean, they're lying in a hospital bed in a room with three strangers who are screaming in pain with doctors and nurses rushing all around them. One of them later described it as complete chaos. And all they can do is just lie there and wonder, is this about to happen to me, or did I get the placebo? Now, at this point, the doctor overseeing the trial says, okay, we are done, and he breaks protocol. He tells the medical staff treating the men and the men themselves who's who. He confirms that the two men who are feeling fine have indeed received the placebo. So those two men are sent home. They gather their things, they walk out of the hospital, not knowing if their fellow test subjects will survive. In the mid-afternoon, the intensive care unit is informed they have six patients in life-threatening condition because of an experimental drug trial. The men all have multiple organ failure, lungs, then kidneys. They're put on ventilators and dialysis machines. At 3.30, the men's families are called. Wives, girlfriends, parents. They're told to come to the hospital immediately. All six men are in critical condition. The families are told this might be their last chance to say goodbye. The men's faces and bellies are swollen and disfigured. One woman even says that her boyfriend looks like the elephant man. Well, that comment reaches the media, and now the British press starts reporting on what was happening to these six men. And, of course, they call the incident the Elephant Man Trials. Six men are in critical condition after a drug trial gone horribly wrong. Doctors attending say they don't really know what drug was being trialed. Some of the patients are described as having swollen heads and bellies. They've been compared to the Elephant Man. 
We know now, and I'm sure the doctors in the ICU knew then, that the swelling had nothing to do with the original drug being trialed. It was a reaction to the fluids and steroids that the men were given to keep them alive. But at the time, all the public knew was that an experiment had failed and had turned these men into monsters. What the drug had actually done was to kick their immune systems into high gear, which technically is exactly what it was supposed to do. But then, since there was no cancer to attack, it just went after healthy cells, destroying the muscles and internal organs. You know, there's a name for that. It's called a cytokine storm. As the days went on, most of the men slowly recovered. The swelling went down, their organs resumed their normal functions, but they still suffered from weakness and fatigue, and there were a lot of unknowns. How would their immune systems behave in the future? Would they be susceptible to cancer? Could they have kids? The worst off was patient 006, the youngest of the participants, just 19 years old. Well after the other five had started recovering, he was still in intensive care needing a machine to breathe. The tips of his fingers had withered and blackened. They'd eventually be amputated along with part of one foot and some of his toes. He didn't get out of the hospital for four months. This was a high-profile case in Britain. Scotland Yard got involved. Their medical unit analyzed the drug and found that its contents and doses were exactly as listed. There had been no mistake, no human error, no deliberate sabotage. The drug just caused a different reaction in humans than it did in animals. Four years later, scientists figured out why. A tiny difference between how our immune systems work and those of macaque monkeys. One antibody, something called CD28 that we have and monkeys don't. That one molecule made all that difference. There were inquests, lawsuits, and yes, the six men did receive financial settlements. And there was also an independent professional review of the whole process. One observation, something that is kind of obvious in hindsight, is that they shouldn't have tested all eight men at once. Remember, the subjects were given the medicine one after the other, with the doctor moving from bed to bed and room to room. Why not wait an hour between each, or even do one subject a day? In all, 22 recommendations were adopted by the European Medicines Agency, making clinical trials, going forward, safer than ever. I'm glad to have been part of something that has reformed the whole industry. That's Rob Oldfield, 007. And the trial has made me realize that life is quite precious and that we need to make the most of it, really, and have a sort of healthy mindset about being alive. And the drug, TGN-1412? Well, the rights to it were acquired by a different company, and they renamed it TAB-08. And get this, it's back in use Using a dose that is one one-thousandth as strong as what Rob got, the drug has passed phase one clinical trials. And now it's being seen as a potential treatment for autoimmune diseases. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. In the first season, we kind of bounced around the scientific universe. We looked at how things get discovered, 
why some people make better scientists than others do, and what questions a researcher should ask. We also played a lot of historical newsreels. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge. This season is going to be a little more granular. We're going to dig into the world of clinical trials. Not just how and why things get tested, but the big questions. How we judge if a trial is a success, why we call test subjects guinea pigs, and why Marie Antoinette was drinking cocktails in a basement with one of Mozart's best friends. The reason we're focusing on clinical trials this season is that Simar, the people who produce this show, are right in the middle of their own clinical trials right now. They're testing the idea that you can use a hormone from the liver, something they discovered and named hepatolin, to diagnose and treat type 2 diabetes. More on that later. For now, I want to do what we do best. Tell a story from history that shines some light on modern research. This is episode 2, The Trouble with Trials. It's late morning, just before lunch. A wave breaks over the starboard rail. The water washes down the side deck and drains off the stern. The bosun yells at the helmsman to keep the nose up and stop washing the crew. There's no real danger. This is HMS Salisbury, a 50-gun ship of the line of the British Royal Navy. The ship is brand new. It was just launched last year. The swells of the Atlantic Ocean in spring are just minor inconveniences. I mean, yes, the water's cold, but most of these men need a bath anyway. The weather and the occasional lapses in concentration by the man on the helm are not what this crew is worried about. There's something much more dangerous, much more deadly already on board. It's lying in the forward hold. The ship's doctor is young just 31 years old. He's a Scotsman named James Lind. He did his master's thesis on venereal diseases, which comes in handy on a ship full of sailors. Lind also has a reputation for being, well, a bit odd, for thinking differently. Medical experts of the day generally focused on curing illness, or in the case of the Royal Navy, removing musket balls and stitching up wounds. Their job was to fix things. But Lind spoke loudly and often about preventing illness. He campaigned for better conditions on ships, better ventilation, clean blankets, balanced nutrition, all as a way to avoid the onset of diseases. Now, this seems like common sense now, but in the 18th century, that sort of approach was, well, just considered ridiculous. But that's not what made him famous, and it's not what I want to talk about today. You see, the reason James Lind is famous is because of what he did on May 20th, 1747. That lurking danger in the forward hold was a disease, an illness that every sailor on board every ship in the world knew and feared. 250 years earlier, Vasco da Gama lost 116 men from his crew of 170, more than two-thirds. In 1520, Magellan lost 208 out of 230. That's 90%. More than pirates or storms or even mythical sea monsters, this was the thing sailors feared most. Anyone stricken with it was placed in a separate part of the ship, 
supposedly for their own comfort, but everybody knew it was just so the other men on board didn't have to watch them slowly die. There was no cure. But Dr. James Lind had an idea. I selected 12 patients on board the Salisbury at sea. Their cases were as similar as I could have them. They all, in general, had putrid gums, the spots and lassitude, with weakness of the knees. They received the same food as the rest of the crew. Gruel sweetened with sugar in the morning, mutton broth at midday, and for supper, barley and raisins, occasionally with some rice. But Lind added a little something to each man's diet. Two of them were given a quart of cider to drink every day. Two others took 25 drops of elixir vitriol three times each day. Now, elixir vitriol is really just a fancy way of saying sulfuric acid, so probably less pleasant than drinking cider. The next two got regular doses of vinegar. Another pair were forced to drink a pint of seawater every day. Patients 9 and 10 were given a lump of paste made of horseradish, mustard seed, and garlic. And the last two men each had two oranges and one lemon every day. This was the first controlled clinical trial of the modern era, and the goal was to find a cure for scurvy. Now today, we know you can get scurvy from a lack of vitamin C. But at the time, that was only anecdotal. Sailors had noticed that crews in the South Pacific who were allowed to bring fresh fruit on board from tropical islands rarely got it. But that was just sailor talk, not medical evidence. Lynn's study had quick and clear results. The most sudden and visible good effects were perceived from the use of oranges and lemons. One of those who had taken them, being at the end of six days, fit for duty. It was clear evidence, albeit in a very small sample size, but the Navy refused to take action. The reason, no surprise here, was money. I mean, getting lemons to all of Britain's sailors all around the world? Do you know how much that would cost? Finally, in 1795, 50 years after Lynn's clinical trial, the Royal Navy made lemon juice a compulsory part of sailors' diets. Over the next two decades, 1.6 million gallons of lemon juice were issued to British ships. They started in barrels with a layer of olive oil on top to keep it from spoiling. Over that time, the number of reported cases of scurvy fell from nearly 1,500 a year to two, not 200, two cases a year. This is the point in the show where we pivot from the historical to the modern. And for that, I'm going to bring in Krista Coventry. So I'm a director of regulatory affairs for a contract research organization. So that's a private industry company that can, on a third-party basis, conduct clinical trials for an industry sponsor. Outsourcing your clinical trials to a CRO like Krista's is an increasingly popular approach. It really adds that extra layer of integrity to your data because once you have your results, it's done through a third party, it's validated, and then the media report on that just gives it a little bit of extra integrity. Right now, she's running trials for Symar, the people who produce this podcast. They have all sorts of exciting irons in the fire right now. New therapeutics in the race to control diabetes. They also have a really novel diagnostic technology that we're also in the process of testing to help better identify individuals that are at risk for prediabetes and diabetes. 
Her work includes trials in all three phases. The first phase are phase one studies, and those are where we want to look at the safety or the tolerability of the proposed product dosage. So we'll look at what's called the pharmacokinetics, which is how is it absorbed and distributed and metabolized and excreted from our body. These studies are often small. We're looking at anywhere from 10 to 50 people, and they're always done in healthy individuals. That's Rob Oldfield in the TGN-1214 trials. You know, the ones people would later call the elephant man trials. But, you know, that was a worst case scenario. Very rare. Usually phase one trials go off without any issues. So provided that we've had no adverse events in phase one, we want to confirm that the product does what it says it's supposed to. So in phase two studies, we're looking at more participants. So anywhere from 20 to 100 participants on average. Participants in this phase actually have the condition that's being treated. So think of Dr. Lind handing out lemons to dying men on board HMS Salisbury. See, if Lind had been doing a phase one trial, he would have just handed lemons to healthy sailors to make sure they weren't toxic. But you don't really have to do that because everybody knows lemons are safe to eat. Then we move on to a phase three study where we look at efficacy in a larger sample size. So here we're looking at anywhere from 100 to 1,000 participants. And sometimes we'll compare the investigational product to a standard treatment. When those results are favorable, phase three studies can be considered a final confirmation of the investigational product's safety and efficacy. Krista suggested an ideal number of participants for each phase, but really, those numbers vary a lot. One of the things that we do as part of our preparation for a clinical trial is what's called a power calculation. So that's where either our PhD scientists or our associated statisticians will take a look at the biomarkers for the study. And we'll do calculations based on clinical trials that have been performed previously. And then we take a look and say, based on what's been done to date, we estimate this number of people should be enrolled in the trial. How long it takes is also a moving target. The duration of the whole R&D process is often determined on how novel the technology is. So are you looking at something brand new or are you taking established ingredients and combining them in a new way? If you're looking at a new molecule, you're really looking at anywhere up to a 10 to 13 year R&D process to really ensure and discover and document what that molecule does in the body. One of Symar's trials is testing the effects of a hormone called hepatolin, one that had never been identified before. So those trials will be going on for quite a while yet. But they've got two other products in trials that might move a lot more quickly. Because, like Krista described, They're a combination of medications already getting used. Those trials are jumping straight to phase two. One of them is for Symar-Nupa test. It's a new way to diagnose type 2 diabetes. I'll have results from that trial by the end of this season, so 10 episodes from now. The other trial is for something called Symar-Nupa Renew. That one is a pill that Symar thinks will reverse type 2 diabetes by renewing the body's ability to produce hepatolin during a meal. If that trial produces the results they're hoping, it has the potential to counteract obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease in one fell swoop. Now, that is a bold claim, but that's why they do the trials. I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. One last thing. About 10 years after the Royal Navy made lemons mandatory, Britain found itself at war with Napoleon. 
the British Navy formed a blockade around the French coast. And if you know anything about naval blockades, you know that you have to stay out at sea for long periods of time. And well, that's only possible if your crew isn't dying from scurvy. So while it might not get mentioned in the history books, I'm a big believer that it was the curative powers of the lemon that defeated the little general. Sometimes when life hands you lemons, things aren't actually that bad.